Hello, and welcome to 97%, a loose women panel on the safety of women and non-binary people in collaboration with the Old Vag Club and Fly. I'm Lucy Richardson, presenter and producer of the radio show Loose Women, and I will be chairing our discussion. Thank you so much for joining. We believe that this is an important discussion for everyone to be having now and moving forward and appreciate your decision to participate by listening to us. The death of Sarah Everard has highlighted that the safety of women and non-binary people is an urgent issue that has historically been and continues to be ignored. In recording this panel, we hope to create an inclusive space that would allow us to discuss our thoughts and experiences, while also relating them to our collective context as students at the University of Cambridge. We would like to state that we are using women in this discussion as an inclusive term that encompasses trans women, women of colour, queer women and anyone who feels that this label best fits their experiences. Please note that the following conversations include discussions of sexual violence, harassment and racial violence. A new survey of 1,000 women in the UK found 97% of those aged 18 to 24 have been sexually harassed. 80% of women of all ages said they'd experienced sexual harassment in public spaces. I can, I can see uh, and I totally understand uh, why this has triggered such a wave of feeling on, on this issue, uh, on the issue of, of safety of women and safety of the, of the streets. Women, particularly young women, are terrified of the threat of male violence on the streets. Men who try and get them to get in their car, who try and get their number, who follow them, who film them, film them, who won't take no for an answer. Every young woman, every day, walks under this threat. Plain clothes police officers could be deployed to patrol bars and nightclubs all part of plans to protect women from predatory offenders. Extra funding has been promised to improve street lighting. According to a survey carried out by UN Women UK and YouGov, 97% of women aged 18 to 24 say they have been sexually harassed. The hashtag not all men began trending on Twitter with many men saying they felt demonized. So do they have a point? Or do more men need to accept responsibility for helping women to feel safe. Women know abduction and murder is just the worst end of a spectrum of everyday male threat to women. 97% of women aged 18 to 24 say they have been sexually harassed. 80% of women of all ages said they have experienced sexual harassment in public spaces. It is thankfully incredibly rare for a woman to be abducted from our streets. But I completely understand that despite that, women in London and the wider public will be worried and maybe feeling scared. 97%. Hello and welcome to 97%. I'm delighted to introduce my guests for today's panel. We have Savannah from FLY. FLY is the network and forum for women and non-binary students of colour in Cambridge. And we also have Olivia and Marina from the Old Vag Club. The Old Vag Club is a female and non-binary centric alternative theatre company aiming to stage new writing, socially and politically challenging productions and push the boundaries of theatrical form. So I want to start by asking, how does it feel to be you today in the current climate? We've had a lot going on, to say the least. Uh, Savannah, I'm going to pick on you first. So I do forums every week where we try and kind of check in with our community. And I think lots of women and non-binary people of colour are kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed with what's been going on, not only with the recent situations and, and the discourse that's been brought forward about women and their, their protection, but also things that might seem 
not as well linked things like the Oprah and Megan interview and how women of color are often vilified in the media all of those things kind of pairing on top of each other has been quite overwhelming for the past few weeks but it's not a surprise I think no one's surprised but it seems to be brought forward now so everyone's kind of just feeling a bit oversaturated by everything that's been said and spoken about. Olivia I'm gonna ask you these last few weeks how have they played out for you? Well, I, th- I think Savannah put it really well there that um, these last few weeks have been really overwhelming, I think, for uh, a lot of the population. And I think I think for different reasons. I mean, obviously, as everyone knows, this has been a year of pandemic. And I think, as Savannah said, there's just so much oversaturation and doom scrolling and, and things like that going on at the minute so that when distressing uh, things come out in the media, I think it's even, it's even harder to deal with than than might be the case in, in normal times. So I guess, uh, yeah, personally, it's it's been an overwhelming uh, couple of weeks and, and, a, and a year in general. Um, just to, when there's not that much going on, I think it's very easy for these kind of distressing things to take on even more significance and, and be even more distressing. And also I feel we're in a digital existence right now. I mean, for, for listeners, we're recording this on Zoom I don't know about you guys, but I spend so much time on my phone. My phone is my window into the world. And given how saturated news outlets have been, I think saturated is a really good word, actually. Of just, It's been absolutely chocker of all these horrible stories and testimonies. And I think we've got some questions, actually, from listeners that really get into that. So I'm going to ask Marina, and then we can start our discussion in earnest. So, um, yeah, not great. I think it's been um, pretty universally tough. I don't really know any women or non-binary friends who haven't kind of been struggling. Yeah, overwhelming, a bit frustrating, but it seems like a lot of people are finding out for the first time things that have been evident to a lot of us for a very long time. I'm glad that there have been moments of light and moments of community within it all I think having friends to talk to about it I think um I attended the reclaim the night vigil the other week and I thought that was a really good space to be in because even though we we're still talking about these horrible issues there's a really a good sense of community which I think was really needed so yeah pretty awful but some light in it and I think that's always the way isn't it where disasters it- in the, in the most horrible way, they bring people together. And there's a real solidarity, I think, in the way everyone's feeling right now and definitely clear hearing from all of your responses. But I'm really interested to pick up on what quite a few of us have already said about this being a kind of new concept. And I kind of want to kick off with a question that has come in from one of our listeners, because I think it's such a good question that a lot of people have been asking quite rightly. So this question is from Cora and Cora asks, Sarah Everard's disappearance has brought to light many of the issues that women face on a daily basis. Why do you think it has taken so long for this to become a major subject of debate? And I'm going to ask Olivia first. Yes, thank you, Cora, for the question. I mean, I guess my initial response would be to say that this hasn't just suddenly out of nowhere become a major subject of debate. And I think, as uh, Savannah and Marina have said, people have been talking about these issues for a long time. And I think what happened with Sarah Everett, I think, has been very distressing for all of us. And it's kind of become kind of a a symbol of things that women are, are experiencing on a daily basis. And it's true that her case has gained a lot of traction I think particularly due to her profile, but I don't think that there wasn't a conversation happening before her disappearance. And I think it's important to underscore that there's there's been a lot of debate and there's been a lot of action going on before now. So it's important not to see this as the kind of the first instance. And I think as well, looking back over last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement and the tragic killing of George Floyd, it often takes these big events that really capture people's attention through social media uh, to really bring these issues to the forefront and I kind of want to ask Savannah about I'm thinking about the idea of issues being slept on and then people suddenly becoming very very aware of it I wonder is this something you've kind of had to deal with with your experiences uh, of fly 
Yeah, I think you hit the the nail on the head there about Black Lives Matter. And following on from what Olivia said, it's it's always been bubbling under the communities that are affected and that are oppressed by, um, well, women against male institutionalized violence or um, people of color against white supremacy. We are always having these conversations, but it's a problem of getting them mainstream and spoken about because it's not until then that those in power and those who have the ability to change things actually pay attention. And I think Sarah Everard for violence against women is like very, is this is, is the catalyst that George Floyd was for Black Lives Matter. Obviously we'll have to see how it plays out over the next few months if, if any change comes. And I think it is a sad thing that it takes, it takes something like this because women face violence every single day. People of colour face racism every single day. Um, but it's only certain cases that kind of fit a good media narrative or when people are sat at home during a pandemic scrolling that, that start to get traction that are picked up on. And so I kind of feel like all these things about sexism, racism and the intersections between two always come up to the surface for a little bit when something big happens and then die down again. And it's about keeping that continuous conversation going that I feel is the problem that we need to start talking about now because I feel even Black Lives Matter has kind of fallen down the radar a little bit from where it was this time, well, not this time last year, but almost this time last year. And I don't want the same to happen in this case as well. So it's about keeping movements at the forefront of people's thoughts, not just those who are oppressed by them. And I think I'd quite like to go back to that towards the end about how we sustain these conversations sort of beyond a hot topic of the week. But thinking back to what Cora is asking about why now, why, as uh, you were saying, Olivia, people have been talking about this for a very, very long time. Why is why does it not get picked up? Marina, do you think that says something about who is running the media at the minute do you think it's the media in itself is kind of patriarchal um yes definitely patriarchal and also there are obvious racial elements to this I think it's not a coincidence that Sarah Everard a white woman became such a high profile case when you know thousands of other and especially women of color are affected by violence on a daily basis and I think in a lot of ways Sarah Everard fit a narrative that the media are keen to portray of a sort of this innocent white victim. I've seen a lot of stuff about how, you know, she did everything right. I'm doing quote marks here for people who can't see that. Um, in that, you know, she texted a friend and wore trainers and things like that. So I think she really fits this idealized victim narrative. And I think that's something we need to be quite careful and like on the lookout for when we're talking about these cases and thinking about who is affected by these issues. And I think that's a really good point. We've talked about Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry, who tragically lost their lives. And that seems to have gone away, discussion about them. And as you're saying, I do think it's very interesting, Marina, why certain cases do get picked up. And thinking about intersecting identities, do we need to take a more nuanced approach to this? Because the more I watch mainstream coverage of this issue like question time, I find it's very much men versus women. And as you mentioned, Marina, a lot of things of she did everything right. There's a lot of attention about men's behavior. Do we need to think a bit more about the spaces in between? And what I mean by that is, do we need to include patriarchy, racism, ableism and homophobia within these discussions? Savannah, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, kind of that's what FLY is all about because um, our experiences of women and non-binary people of colour, sometimes we find anti-racist movements are patriarchal and feminist movements can be racist and white feminism is something that we struggle with a lot. Um, and there's a lot of discussions when, when we talk as a group in FLY. And I think it all comes down when we talk about the Sarah Everard case to palatability politics in the sense that Sarah Everard was white, she was successful, still about class, she was relatively well off. So all of those things make her a good person to link a movement to, a good person so you don't get any pushback. But the racialization, when we talk about ableism or or horrible stereotypes that surround LGBTQ plus people, all of those things make raising a movement more difficult 
because they're not palatable. The media don't want to talk about them and it allows more space for whatever racist, sexist, homophobic, ableist critiques of this individual that we've decided to, to place all our attention on. So definitely this conversation needs more nuance, not just in the sense of how the media choose to portray struggle and portray activism and who they decide to focus on, but also within the movements themselves. When Fly joined with Wonkam for Reclaim the Night, it was all about trying to make sure that there was an intersection there, that it wasn't just white feminists taking up the conversation, but there were spaces for more marginalised communities too to have a say and talk about their experience. So I think even within the activist sphere, and hopefully with more activism that comes from from this um, specific event, it can be more nuanced and more intersectional to the struggles that different communities face. I'm going to put another question to you, Savannah. I'm intrigued as to, do you think this applies to men as well? I'm thinking there's a lot of men of colour who already have narratives of people thinking they're aggressive or violent or suspicious. And a lot of social media content has been looking at men's behaviour and ways in which they're intimidating and also have suggested that men don't really face experiences of fear and obviously that's been counted by the not all men kind of camp but yeah I'm wondering can we apply a lens of intersectionality to men in this conversation too? I think a hundred percent in the sense that Black men are extremely racialized as aggressive, they're stereotyped, it's more dangerous. And so then in that sense, it, it becomes twofold. It's in the sense that we've got to think about how this is going to affect them and how we must bring the, ta- the, the conversations around protecting yourself in the streets and protecting yourself from institutionalized like violence or institutionalized policing. In this sense, when we're talking about it right now, is coming to women but this is something that happens to black men every day with stop and search so there's those intersections there but then there's also another one where if we're focusing on black men being these scary suspicious stereotypes then that draws the eye away from the wider problem which is boys will be boys and that does not just affect black men it kind of is a little bit of a scapegoat for white men too because they can say, well, I'm a white man, therefore I'm more respectable than this black man that's going to scare you based on these racialized stereotypes. And so it comes back to that, definitely. Yeah, and I think that that when we look at this lens of intersectionality, we, we must remember that black men do face their own levels of oppression, especially if they're on top of that, which feature other intersects of ability or LGBTQ+. And whilst we must have that conversation, we must also not forget that black men are still complicit often in the patriarchal society against women of colour and white women too. And so they can't get a get out of free card in this, being that they're they're men of colour, they've got to recognise their privilege there too. So thinking about zooming out and this as a patriarchal problem, I think the news has really summarised this. Um, Looking at the papers, there's been a lot of coverage actually about Australia and the March for Justice, which has been centred on Canberra, the capital of Australia. And these protests follow a wave of allegations of sexual assault, abuse and misconduct in some of the highest offices in Australian politics. So it kind of goes without saying that misogyny is a global issue. It's as you were saying, Savannah, it's a it's a bigger issue than just particular groups. And I wanted to ask Olivia, do you think there are problems that are specifically unique to the UK in this? There's a kind of British form of misogyny. I think it's a really interesting question. I think with the UK, there's kind of this air of like perceived superiority where like people think that Britain is kind of like a bastion of progressiveness and it's a bit of a smokescreen actually there's a lot of injustice going on in the UK which aren't specific to the UK necessarily but they kind of slip under the radar a bit it's worth pointing out with kind of the mention of Australia that these are all fundamentally linked to systems of global capitalism and global patriarchy that I think cause this these kind of like global experiences of misogyny which do kind of manifest in specific instances and they have their own very culturally bound context. But I think 
that you can't really see the issues of misogyny without kind of looking at the global in this. And thinking politically, in the UK specifically, we're coming up to local elections, which is certainly a really interesting time for this to have all come out. Marina, do you think that we're going to see more pressure on candidates to do something about this issue? I hope so. And yeah, I definitely think that, you know, I really hope that this is going to continue to be part of the sort of national discussion for a while still. Um, I think it's great that it's been covered in media and social media, but I would really like to see some of this put into action, some of this, the changes that women have been asking for for so long to be put into place. So yeah, I hope so. So the Prime Minister has announced he's he's moved fairly quickly. It seems uncharacteristically quickly, actually, on this situation. And he's announced that they've doubled the Safer Streets Fund, which provides neighbourhood measures such as better lighting and CCTV. That's now at £45 million. And he's also announced that nightclubs and bars are also to be patrolled by plainclothes police police officers and um, police officers to protect women from sexual harassment and assault now i don't know about you but it simply makes me glad that cindy's has closed down at this point but what do we think about this olivia i'm going to come back to you what what are your thoughts on boris's solutions to this well, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, when this was announced, I kind of can't help but laugh at these proposals because things like putting um, plainclothes officers in nightclubs and increasing CCTV, this is all just contributing to an increasingly oppressive surveillance society. And I don't think that this is, this is still not tackling what are the core problems. This is saying, okay, well, we're going to put technologies in place so we can capture the people doing this and 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 be able to act retrospectively on these these instances of assault that happen and it's not actually addressing the core which is that these things shouldn't be happening in the first place and i think i mean the the example of of the the plainclothes police plainclothes police officers in nightclubs i just think it really is counterproductive because if you're trying to make these spaces more comfortable for women and non-binary people putting police officers in in there who aren't even identifiably police officers, I think that's just even, it's contributed to the problem, making it even worse. So I think uh, Boris Johnson and the administration have really missed the mark on this one. So we seem to have seen two camps within this. So what's been quite interesting, I think, has been the difference between various feminist organisations as to how they're approaching this. So on one hand, we have reclaim these streets who are actually standing by Cressida Dick because their um, explanation for this is we are a movement of women seeking to support and empower other women and as one of the most senior women in British policing history we do know we do not want to add to the pylon so that's Anna Burley in charge of reclaim the streets so they seem to be operating within a police framework and trying to kind of find a solution that involves the existing police structure. But I've also seen Sisters Uncut who have seen this as a chance to overhaul the policing system and indeed dismantle the system. So Savannah, I'm intrigued to know where you sit on this. For your listeners, there's an excellent article on these two movements um, on Galdem which is a site uh, <laughs> written by um, women and non-binary people of colour who contribute to that site. Um, they've got a brilliant article on thinking about these two organisations because um, I'll admit that when all of this happened, just because it was so overwhelming, I kind of took myself away. And so I kind of came at this from the outside in, not affiliated with either movement. And I was just quite taken aback by reclaiming the streets in the sense that they come across as a bit tone deaf, which maybe is too is too mean to say and doesn't give them enough credit. But they don't recognise a privilege that a lot of them are privileged white women, and they see another privileged white woman in a position of power, and they think surely she has good intentions. And I've and from a perspective of an anti racist perspective, it, it's always thrown at us. Well, Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel, like 
they're in power don't like don't tear down other people of color who are getting places but it's like I don't care what color the person who's kicking me down is the fact is they're kicking me down it doesn't matter what color they are representation only goes so far and representation is important and it is great to that we have a woman at in that high in in police but that doesn't mean anything if she's not if she's complicit in the patriarchal institution. And again, we shouldn't be putting everything on her to dismantle it as one woman at the top. That's not what it should be about. But the fact that she's there and she's playing into it doesn't mean that we can't critique her just because she's a woman. And so I'm wholly agreeing with Sisters and Kurt. And I think the whole discourse around dismantling the police has been very politicised. No one's talking about, well, from my perspective, I can't talk for everyone. But it's not about we're never going to have any like security at all. It's about rethinking what the police are to us and what their job is and who they're supposed to be looking after. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier and what Olivia was saying about plain closed policemen in a, in a club. As a woman of colour, that's very scary. And the fact that you can't identify them, what purpose does that serve then? You don't know who to go to if there's a problem. It just kind of shows like the maleness, paleness and staleness within the cabinet because men, these men in who's making these decisions don't understand that it's it's men themselves. I know it's not all men, but it's the it's the what the dynamics between men and women, which is what's scary in a club. It's the whiteness for a, a woman of colour to have like a white man watching over them in a club. And and it's like do you not understand how nightclubs work? What do you expect them to do? Kind of stand and watch the action. No one seems to have thought that through. <laughs> yeah, I was going to come to you, Marina, because you said you were at the Reclaim Night March. Now, my friend said that they decided to put a lot of female police officers on the streets that evening. Do you think that was a solution? Did that make you feel safer? I think there's a really sort of, dangerous trap of identity politics you can fall into here thinking you know women equals good man equals bad if there's a woman in charge no matter anything else that's still a good thing I think we need to be really sort of careful about not falling into that I don't think the police had a place at vigils such as that I don't think they should have been policed at all and I think there's also quite a tendency of oppressed groups pushing each other down to try and lift themselves from oppression, which is, you know, stoked on by the people in power who want to sort of divide and conquer oppressed groups because they think it will further their feminist agenda. But ultimately, you know, it's not going to work. Marginalised peoples are always going to be stronger as a sort of collective and it's kind of just playing into exactly what sort of the oppressors want them to do. And I think that brings us back to patriarchy, doesn't it? Of I think there's a lot of people who are seeking to class this as a women's problem. But personally, I'm very keen to bring gender non-conforming people into this. And indeed, anyone who feels unsafe to be out at night because of men at the end of the day, unfortunately. I kind of want to get more local with this. So we've talked about the UK. We've talked about intersectionality, the new measures coming in and identity politics. But obviously, we're all students at the University of Cambridge, and this is our home turf. It's where we walk around at night. And I wanted to ask, are there problems that are unique to Cambridge regarding this issue of safety? And I mean that on an institutional level or behaviour of the people there. I'm going to come to Olivia for this one. Yeah, so I mean, there are definitely, definitely things that are specific to Cambridge as an institution, which contribute to this issue I think predominantly this the idea of Cambridge it was it was made as a male institution the fact that women couldn't get degrees at Cambridge until 1948 kind of shows how male orientated an institution it is and I think unfortunately it really does influence how men and women operate and experience the university I think that for instance, extracurricular life is very dominated by an oppressive, aggressive male forms of sociability, such as uh, drinking societies and swaps and, and things like that. So I think 
as an institution, it definitely has its unique issues. But at the same time, I think there's also just a broader universality of educational institutions, be it Cambridge, be it Warwick, be it Dulwich College, as was in the news this morning. I think there's something, and I don't know if it's specific to the British educational system, but there's something ingrained in the education system, which really we need to address from a young age, because I think otherwise these kind of behaviours are cemented and are encouraged by these educational institutions. Um, but sorry, just because I remembered going back to Cambridge, I think that also an issue with Cambridge is that the way that the college system is, I think it makes reporting instances of sexual assault and harassment really complicated and there's a lot of bureaucracy involved and I think there is a lack of uniformity across the colleges I know of an instance of someone who was accused of sexual assault who was asked by his college to defer uh, to intimate and then was accepted at another college like a year later so still allowed to kind of operate in Cambridge so I think um, yeah Cambridge as an institution very much has issues and I think a large part of that is down to the collegiate nature of Cambridge and, and and as we were talking about earlier with intersectionality I think with Cambridge being made as like a male dominated space it, it really much it really intersects with class and this male privilege and entitlement of these spaces whereby they believe that they can operate in certain ways and, and act in certain in ways and because of their their class privilege. And I think this this is another issue where, well, and race, and another issue where white male elite men feel like they can act in, in certain ways and everyone else has to kind of work around them. So I'm really interested, Olivia, because you've picked up on Cambridge as still a white male space, which I think might be surprising to some people who aren't there. Um, because it's 2021, you know, I think we'd all hope that things are better. And to tell you the truth, when I made this show, I started to think, oh, do we still need it? I kind of feel like we are being heard. And then this year, we've had all of these things happen in a very short space of International Women's Day. We had Sarah's case and we had the Meghan Markle tabloid mania. So very, very clearly, there's still a lot that needs to be said. Marina, do you think this rings true that in 2021, people still don't really feel like Cambridge is a place for them? I think it it definitely does. I think you can't kind of escape from the memory that, you know, within living memory, women shouldn't have been in Cambridge. Like I wouldn't have been allowed to get a degree here. Um, I think it's also clear in sort of who runs the institution and makes the decisions. And I think that's also going to impact quite a lot of what there is in place. For instance, if all the higher ups are men, of course, like quite a lot of the policies on sexual assault and harassment are going to be outdated because ultimately the power lies with people for whom that sort of thing doesn't matter as much. Not a personal attack, just a fact of how it's set up. I also think it's very noticeable in other sort of intersecting identities. Cambridge is, you know, famously like completely inaccessible to lots of disabled students both in terms of you know the physical city being completely awful and also sort of the structure of the term not being made for students with mental health or neurodiversity um also you know for queer students Cambridge isn't a safe space I've found this in my own college with some staff it's simply not built for us and I think it is very noticeable it's probably not as noticeable if you are in a position if you're a white man where it was literally built for you, but it definitely is still something that I think a lot of people feel. And I think that seems to be the thing that's really coming to light, isn't it? And it takes us back to the start with Cora's question of why so long? And I think a lot of it is that for a lot of men, we're not saying that you're mean or nasty or horrible or that you're, you know, always perpetuating awful behaviour, but there's something very wrong about society that you have not been aware of this and that might not be your fault, but we need to do something about that. The fact that a lot of our student population, the fact this is news to them, I think is quite alarming. So with that in mind, Savannah, through your experiences of FLY, are there changes that could be made, you know, tangible adjustments to, I realise this is a big question, (laughs) tangible adjustments to the student space to make it safer for everyone? 
Yep, I'm just going to solve sexism in Cambridge right now, everybody. <laughs> um, no, it's so hard to do. And it's going to be hard to implement when you get to a position where we are all young adults, because I feel like the whole boys will be boys now. Stereotypes that are assigned, of course, they're completely binary and exclusionary. They're completely racialized as well. Um, they're so problematic and you're taught them from absolute birth and I've been I used to teach young children um, at a dance school and some of the comments we'd hear from parents of three-year-olds like oh well he's going to get all the girls later or he's going to be a right flirt and it's it's those type of things that are ingraining this sense of lad culture and and boys will be boys and proliferate and get a Cambridge space in the states of drinking societies and swaps and sporting um sports club society that you know have some socials where questionable things happen and not only not only do we have these these problems in Cambridge so to start I, I think personally drinking socks should not exist um I'm at Downing College where we have a very prevalent um male drinking society um they get a garden party every year why is that a thing um it's exclusionary and wrong on so many levels so one thing that we can do at a university space is to start cracking down on on these things that proliferate this like lad culture and then the second thing that we can start thinking about doing is that these things happen and even if you shut down drinking societies right now like I said it begins at birth it begins at a young age so if you start shut down these swaps and drinking societies then sexual harassment is not going to go away. Um, it's going to take a long time and a big educational change that I, I can't see, frankly, happening in my lifetime. But what we can do is think about how these things are reported and that kind of really follows on from what Olivia is saying, that a lot of this stuff goes under the rug. It's almost like open secrets. I don't know about you, but my friends have told me, avoid this person, avoid this person, or don't go near this person when you're on a night out. It's a big open secret. Why is how why have Cambridge as an institution built an environment where men are comfortable being able to do these things, not just to women or women of colour, but to um, men who do it to LGBTQ plus men and things like this? Why is that comfortable that we're allowed to we're allowing that to happen? And that they feel that nothing's going to happen if they do that. So that comes along to changing our culture, changing the severity and the transparency of reporting. Um, and I think there are tangible things that we can do in the immediate whilst we try and lobby as hard as we can. And Cambridge is a very influential space to do this for wholesale cultural change from birth through education about this patriarchalness that is infused in our whole culture. And I think these are two strands that have been picked up as well throughout all of this is there's one side, which is the education and the behavioural issue. And the other is the harsher disciplinary punishment and making sure that these crimes, because that's what they are, we need to start calling them crimes, are taken seriously. But as you picked up, this is unfortunately not going to happen overnight. And I think there's a different, a difficult balance for women and non-binary people who are existing in a space that they know is not safe but also we don't want to blame those people for taking charge of their own safety when people not protecting themselves enough isn't really the problem at hand but that being said we have had a question come in from a listener and I think it's a really good question and I think it speaks to this issue of how do I keep myself safe in, in the present, because that's the reality of what we have to do. So a question from Claire. The recent news has made me think about self-defence lessons. I would be interested to hear if any of the panel have done these or have any thoughts. Has anyone done self-defence? Oh, Olivia's, Olivia's doing a little, a little shimmy. Is that a yes? Yeah, so not um, when I was younger, I did martial arts lessons, and that was very much. I think, I think, yeah. I mean, sadly, it was the case that my parents were worried for my safety when I became older. That they felt it, one of the things I could be doing to protect myself would be to take martial arts lessons, and I just think uh, to to answer Claire's question, I mean, 
I think it's really sad and I don't think it should be the case that the impetus is on the woman to change her behaviours and the responsibility should not be on the woman to act in a certain way or do these things so that she is less likely to be sexually assaulted. But at the same time, I think it's important that any woman does whatever she feels would make her comfortable or empowered or feel better defended in that situation. So I think if someone wanted to do self-defense lessons, I wouldn't would not dissuade them from do, dissuade them from doing that. Um, I just think that again, we're kind of beating around the bush and we're not really tackling the the issue at hand. But I think in the meantime, if that would make someone feel safe, I would I would say do it. So in tandem to this, I did my own research and one of my friends has done one of these classes. So thank you, Violet, for your info on this. Uh, so she said that it was very useful to have a formula. I think they gave them a plan of attack because one thing I noticed on question time is they had a guest who was attacked and then unfortunately got accused of using unnecessary force in her own self-defense. So I think what Violet is saying is that they found it really helpful to have things like stay back and then saying, I said, stay back. So you have two warnings, which then keeps you legally safe and gives your attacker reason to leave you alone. But I think they said that that was very helpful for them. And also she said to use her body weight was really helpful and learning how to use a specific form of self-defense that was tailored towards her was very, very helpful, I think, in this instance. So it seems to be positive feedback on that. But yes, as you were saying, Olivia, it's a real difficulty, I think, of living in this space between what we should do and what we have to do. I also want to touch on another listener question, which I think is a really good one. So here's a question from Joanna. Now we're moving more towards social media, which of course has been really integral to all of this and integral to so many other forms of activism. So Joanna's picking up on this and she says, currently such positive action in increasing conversation is occurring with a major platform being social media. With so much pressure on survivors already to come forward and speak up for change, how do you think social media can be used successfully to engage people and start a conversation without further traumatizing or triggering those affected? Do you think it's already effective and safeguarding should be up to the individual? I'm going to come to Savannah because I feel this might be your field of expertise. We've had a lot of conversations about this yet yeah, in fly forums about what it means to, to use social media. Um, it's a really tough question because on the one hand, yeah, social media has been great for getting the word out and getting awareness going both with what's happening right now with violence against women, but also um, last year with Black Lives Matter. So you can get awareness building, you can get conscious raising. I agree that it's a good tool for that. I don't know if that's kind of where it stops because it's also extremely traumatising um, for people who have to live this reality every single day and they go on Instagram and they just want to chill and look at pretty pictures but they're confronted by especially during Black Lives Matter horrific videos of people who look like them every day being hurt and it's hard to watch and it's hard to like this has been happening now where it's flooding Instagram for like a year and that's going to do something to your mental health so I think that is a really serious conversation that we need to have about and the media is the mainstream media stuff like BBC News and and, and other broadcasting um, TV channels and stuff they love putting videos up like the amount of times that they showed George Floyd dying that's so unnecessary and so I think there is that line between conscious raising, but then making a spectacle out of something. And that's the case of George Floyd and um, like violence against women. And I also think, it, I don't know if people have heard of the phrase slacktivism, where people think that by posting a black square or putting an infographic about violence against women is enough. And now you count as an activist. No. That doesn't do anything. You need to, to, to put yourself at risk 
physicalize your activism uh, to challenge institutions and by using a multimedia like a multi-million pound social media tool to post a pretty infographic you're not challenging any institution there and that's and I feel like social media gives people like a scapegoat to do that so I'm a bit skeptical about it personally. Marina I'm going to come to you because I want to pick up on Joanna's final question here of do you think it's the responsibility of the individual or do you think social media giants need to step up their game here and protect people? I think my issue with that is I don't entirely trust social media giants to do that. I think, especially in recent months, sort of Instagram censorship of, for example, sex workers, I'm not sure I would be comfortable or trust them to do the right thing. I think if you're posting content about a censored topic, you do have to take some responsibility for that post and sort of be aware of why you're posting it and sort of who's going to see it and how you can make it um, as effective and but still as sort of sensitive as possible. I think it's been very noticeable with a lot of the social media posts I've seen that like the approach people are taking to activism is not trauma-centred, it's not centred in the experience of survivors. I've seen so few content notes. I've seen quite a lack of sort of links to resources and supports, support resources. Um, and I also think I've seen quite an uncomfortable trend of people sort of being like, oh, if you're not posting about this, your silence is very loud. I think that's a really problematic stance to take. There are very many reasons why lots of people might not want to post about this sort of thing. Even men, like you can't know, men can be survivors as well. And I think additionally, like with what Savannah said about slacktivism, like, you know, people could be not posting on social media, but doing other sort of much more impactful things. So, sorry, it's not directly linked to the question, but yeah, I just think we all have a responsibility to use social media responsibly. I think that is acceptable to say. I would like to be able to trust sort of big social media companies, but I I don't think I could. Olivia, do you think that we actually need to rely on trauma? Do you think, I don't know, it strikes me that we shouldn't really have to have everyone unpack their trauma on a table for someone to engage with a movement but as Savannah was saying historically that seems to be the case with a lot of social justice movements do you think that trauma needs to be an integral part of this movement Uh, it's an interesting question because I mean I think from the kind of global movements that we've seen like Me Too and Black Lives Matter and things like that I think it seems that trauma and stories of trauma are the ones that are gaining the traction and these are the ones that are making people sit up and listen. And I I don't, I'm sad that that's the case because I think for these people to have to come forward and tell these stories and recount these very traumatising events, I think it's very, it's very hard for them. And I think in an ideal world, I would like, I'd like to decenter, I guess, trauma in the sense of like, if it's difficult for that person to talk about it. I mean, because I think for some people, and I can't speak from my own experience, but I think for some people talking about events that have been traumatic for them, it's quite cathartic and it can kind of empower them and put them in a position where they they're kind of reclaiming and reowning what's happened to them. But I think that it shouldn't be the only way that these movements gain momentum and traction, because I don't think for everyone that's the way that they can communicate and can kind of deal with these things that have happened to them so I think that there's a danger of it even becoming kind of not clickbaity but I don't know just it's kind of I don't yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's a difficult one but I think it's, it's kind of down to the individual to kind of use what they've got in the most productive way that they can and that's always going to vary from person to person. Savannah you're nodding do you want to weigh in on this too? So talking about trauma, Olivia is completely right that um, it's really difficult for some people and really cathartic for others. And that's what I think Fly tries to tap into in that we are a safe space every week for women to come and non-binary people of colour to come and unpack any trauma that they want to talk about, if they want to rant, if they want to cry, if we want to laugh. We're going to have a validating and affirming space for them. And on the one hand, that gives them that cathartic feeling of being able to release but it also means that we can act as kind of 
a collective. We have this shared experience. And I think we find a lot of people who are in this activist space talking about these movements are, are giving the trauma and are very vocal about it because it's their lived experience. And I think someone talking about their trauma on social media as their lived experience is a very different thing from a lot of people on who are in the oppressor group, so either men in this case or white people in the BLM case, taking that person's story, taking that person's trauma and posting it all over their, their feed to show that they're some form of ally. No. So I think there, there is like that nuance there about whose lived experience it is and who's allowed to share their trauma and in what spaces they're comfortable for that to happen. And thinking about what you're saying, Savannah, I think this also, you know, the philosophy behind flight, I think that really speaks to the old Vatch Club. And Marina, I'm going to come to you because I know that the old Vatch Club base an annual performance, which is called Public House, on real life testimonies, which have been submitted by students. So do you think theatre is a particularly cathartic medium through which to approach this? Why do you think that works? I think... First of all, it's important to say like public house is only so impactful because it's for the stories of survivors in their own words. The script is sort of crafted together and edited, but the, the words themselves are not changed. So you're getting a verbatim report of survivors, which is a relatively rare thing to get. And it's a very valuable thing. And, you know, Field Badge Club are so grateful that enough people sort of trust us to be able to send us that. I would say it's potentially that's the more impactful bit I'm I think that's sort of what makes public health so important the fact that you're getting the real words I think the theatre bit also is important but in a slightly lesser way I think the main benefit is sort of reaching communities and different audiences and potentially wider audiences but just people who might not normally engage with these sort of things um working in theatre there is it is quite noticeable that very few People involved in theatre also get involved in student politics and kind of vice versa. So I think the Old Badge Club really bridge that gap and bring more people and more perspectives into these conversations, which I think is important. I also think recently there's been a lot of sort of talk and allegations around members of the theatre community. And I think that shows that it is really important that we are talking to people in this community and reaching them because they otherwise might not be reached. Olivia, do you have any thoughts on this as a second representative for the Old Vag Club? I mean, I think I think Marina summed it up very nicely, but I would just add would add that with Public House as well, I think we're so mindful that these kind of stories can be really difficult to tell. And I feel that that really has it really informs kind of the whole process of devising the show and even the performance itself, so that I think what makes Public House potentially different from other other plays, apart from like the verbatim aspect, I think is our like emphasis on how if you come and watch, you can leave at any time. We have rest breaks throughout the performance. Uh, Theatre itself lends itself to kind of catharsis. And I think it can be a really real political tool, as Marina said, but I think that also specifically with Public House, um, in the years that we've done it, I think it's really proven useful not only for those survivors contributing their stories and others in the audience who may not have contributed but still relate to these stories but also I think as a, as Maria said as an educational tool for other um, members of society. So I think I've got time for just one more question and really just seeking to pull this all together of everything we've discussed today and we've covered so much so it's quite hard to do but a lot of social media content has focused specifically on men's behaviour and you know, we've also had the strand of institutional violence and as Savannah was saying at the start with Black Lives Matter movement, we're already conscious that this is kind of trickling away from the forefront of people's minds at the minute. How do we continue these conversations in a meaningful way beyond the present? How do we take this forward? Marina, I'm going to come back to you. I think it kind of goes back to what we said at the very beginning is that these aren't entirely new conversations and there are people who've been working on these issues for a long time and will continue to do so after the news cycle has sort of lost interest. And I think if you are personally interested in getting more involved, there are plenty of campaigns and ways you can do that. Obviously, 
the women's campaign in Cambridge does a lot about this. I'm also, sorry, a bit of a self-plug, but I'm a member of Loud and Clear, who are a society in Cambridge, and we've been campaigning on this for a year already, and we're always looking for new members. I think aside from that, you know, if you're a woman, look after yourself. It can be really draining. If you've experienced this sort of thing, also, please just look after yourself. Um, if you do have the energy or the ability, talk about it, engage in conversations, engage in campaigning work, and yeah, just be vigilant for sort of misogyny that's around us and do what you can within your limits. Savannah, do you have anything to add? I would just say for me, it's about turning words into action. I find that when something like this happens and it explodes and it gets into popular discourse, we talk about it for a really long time. The government do some minor plaster sticking on the cracks and then we move on. And so it's about keeping this conversation going and to make it meaningful it's about engaging with those who hold the power to make the changes so looking for radical policy change rather than quick fixes that a government might do to just calm the the swell of outrage that's coming and so it's thinking about that and I don't have the answers about how we can turn activism and, and this discourse is happening into tangible policy and educational changes but that's something that we need to think about as a group of of women and non-binary people who are victims to patriarchy about how we can challenge those power structures that that keep it in place and that can that control the methods to deconstruct it so in that sense it is about taking this further away from discourse off social media off television into something more powerful but then i think where our discourse and our social media can be really good tools is to keep the conversation going. And with 24-hour news and the crazy world that we live in, things die down very quickly. So I think using social media and using other media platforms is useful in that sense to just like, let's keep reminding people of um, that this is still going on. And just because we now have plainclothes police officers in clubs, patriarchy isn't undone. So thinking about patriarchy and, as we mentioned, Cambridge being a male white space specifically, I'm hoping we'll have some male listeners or maybe just the ones that I've badgered to listen. But if you are listening, thank you very much. You're already doing something. But Olivia, what do you see as being men's role in continuing this conversation? Are there any specific things that men could do to help move this forward? Yeah, I mean, I think... Especially for, because not all, it's important to say not all men for their own intersectional reasons feel safe in public spaces. So I think for those men that generally do operate and walk around society without kind of fear and without feeling uncomfortable, I think it's really important for them to kind of take a step back and engage in conversations with female friends and relatives and things like that. And just to as well as kind of broader educating educational kind of tasks and campaigning, I think it's really important to try and ask, and, and we shouldn't really have to ask, but I think men who feel safe in these spaces should take the initiative to kind of talk to their female counterparts and try and empathise and understand the things that they never truly will understand. But I think the more that they can do to try and empathise with us and, 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 yeah, just try and fill our shoes and see how we would feel I think that can do a lot on an individual level. But as Savannah said, I think obviously this goes so beyond the individual and we need to kind of take this beyond an individual level. And that's where things like education and campaigning come in because that's where real, tangible, wide change comes in. But for for now, I think at an individual level where people, I think this whole year, a lot of people have felt very kind of, disillusion and disfranchise and thinking well what can I do from home kind of thing I think it's really important to remember that so much change can happen just from you as an individual even if it doesn't feel like this humongous thing just you kind of changing how you interact with your female friends I think that is already a big a big step there's always more to do I hate to be that person but if you're sat there thinking I've done it all you probably haven't but yes any any change is good change And unfortunately, we've reached the end of today's panel discussion. I'm sure we could talk for hours and hours, but 
sadly, the limits of Zoom and time have said this is enough. But we have heard from two fantastic organisations today, and I'm so thrilled to have had them on the panel. It's truly been a fantastic discussion. I think you might not think so, but I hope so, listening at home. And it's also important to state at this point, everyone here is a student. We are all studying for degrees. So all these organisations are juggling, caring for each other, caring for students and ensuring that Cambridge is a safe and happy place to be alongside their own work. And I'm very conscious that it's the end of term. So thank you so much to my guests, Marina, Olivia and Savannah for giving up time at the end of term, which is so hard to find. So thank you. I really appreciate that. If you've tuned in, do get in touch with your thoughts at Loose Women on Twitter and Instagram or drop us a comment on the Facebook page. I've been Lucy Richardson presenting for Loose Women and I would like to say a massive thank you to Sam Holloway, Ellie Bladen and all of the CAM FM committee for making this possible and thank you for listening. If you want to follow Fly and the Old Fadge Club on social media you can do so at the following. So it's at Fly Cambridge we have a public Facebook page and if you identify as a woman or non-binary person of colour there's um, Fly just as a group. We're also under the same name on Instagram too and email us at Fly Cambridge if you have something that you'd like to send there. And also, yeah, so we are The Old Badge Club on Facebook and our Insta handle is the same, so at The Old Badge Club. And I just thought I would take this opportunity to also say that um, we're hoping to have our fourth performance of Public House on the 21st of May at the Town and Gown but details will follow in due course, so please keep an eye out. You have been listening to 97%, a collaboration between Loose Women, The Old Fadge Club and Fly Cambridge. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.